0: Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, <clears throat> and there was a woman who, for 18 years, had had a sickness that was caused by a spirit, or um, literally, a spirit of infirmity, and she was bent double, and she could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he, he called her over and said to her, woman, woman. You are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed. And not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Maybe you saw the infographic, which made the rounds this past week. It was found in a number of the different syndicated newspaper, uh, nationally syndicated newspapers, entitled, A Visual Guide to How the World's Most Incredible Athletes Compare... ...to the world's most average animals. <laughs> it's quite amusing. So we know that Usain Bolt is, is fast. As in 27.8 miles per hour fast. It's just astonishing when you stop to think about it. The guy can run nearly 30 miles an hour. And yet, even the great Usain Bolt... ...he's actually slower than a two-inch small butterfly or a common African warthog. It's true, and the infographic shows it, that the southern dart butterfly and the the common female African warthog would both beat Usain Bolt in a 100-meter dash, which is to say nothing about the world's fastest animal, which is, do we know, uh, the peregrine f- falcon, if we, that's kind of cheating, isn't it? But <laughs> the peregrine gra- falcon can go uh, 187 Miles an hour. Or take another Olympic celebrity, Michael Phelps can swim 4.7 miles per hour, which is faster than the average speed of that of an emperor penguin. But even the great Michael Phelps is no match for the gray whale. In spite of its weighing 40 tons, it could pass Michael Phelps in a 50 meter freestyle. And the fastest fish on earth, the sailfish, could complete three laps of the pool by the time that Phelps completed one. I found it amusing. It just goes to show what incredible creatures animals are. Uh, I mean, animals are, are great, and it's interesting how we develop such a close attachment to them. I mean, think about how close you might be to a domesticated cat or dog. You remember the time when I cried from the pulpit after Jasper the beagle died. We love animals. But here's the haunting question, which might not be immediately evident from the passage, but as I've thought about it this week, it troubles me. What if we treat our animals better than we treat our own people? What happens when you live in a society which treats It's animals with more mercy and compassion than it does it's poor, it's disabled, and it's unborn. We walk into the synagogue with Jesus on the Sabbath day, and uh, if we were to get a picture of it, odds are it was a relatively small congregation, probably nothing more than a few dozen people. Attendance might have been higher this week because you had the great guest preacher who who was visiting We walk in and we see, we see a a hideously crippled woman, don't we? So crippled that she's nearly at a 90 degree angle. Today, if we were to see her, we might diagnose her medically as somebody who is suffering from severe scoliosis. But Luke, if you notice in her passage, suggests that this affliction that she's suffering from is somehow related to Satan's influence. Not that she's Uh, um, possessed by a a demon or a spirit, but but it's related to Satan's influence. And some have speculated, they've just wondered, if this woman wasn't persistently abused earlier in her life, if she hadn't suffered some physical abuse, which had done injury to her spinal column, or persistent verbal abuse, which had, had done such... A, a terrible work on her insides that, that messed up her internal world so badly that those emotions manifest themselves out to her body, and she finds that she's so tied up that she can't, she can't get straight again. It seems to me that either one of those would qualify as an affliction of Satan. We see this afflicted woman, and she's, she's literally a hunchback, which means that for the last 18 years of her life, She has never run, nor danced, nor jumped rope, nor looked anybody squarely in the eye for 18 years. She's had to cock her head to the side in order to see what's directly in front of her. And we can only assume that a body this terribly misshapen uh, had to suffer from chronic pain Gravity is not on this woman's side. It's always putting stress on her joints and her muscles. She's a, she's a terribly afflicted case. Well, here we are in the synagogue, and there's an official who they would call him the president of the synagogue. The, the president of the synagogue was more like an administrator than he was a preacher. Normally, as best I know it, they would invite rabbis from in the community or who are visiting to come and read from Torah On Saturday morning, and preach the sermon. But there's the administrator, and there's Jesus, and there's a power struggle that's going on between the two of them. Between the guest preacher, all eyes are on him, everybody is eating up all of his words in the sermon. And while Jesus is preaching, he looks out in the congregation and he notices this woman. He notices her. She doesn't raise her hand or walk the aisle and ask to be healed. Preachers notice, (laughs) they notice the people out there, and Jesus does that in in this case. And with a word and a touch, woman, I say to you, you are freed, she is healed. We can only imagine the, the, the shock, the gasps. Which must have come out of the gallery as this woman straightens up and starts rejoicing that her long nightmare has ended. The kingdom of heaven has come into, come to earth. The king has come and he's broken into this place. A great miracle of healing has occurred. Yet all this synagogue official can do is angrily rebuke the people and say, don't come here on Sabbath Saturday to get healed which is a, it's a devastating reminder of, of what unbelief does to us, of its blinding power. Uh, well, there you have it. There's the, the, the story. Uh, I, I think that this isn't a gospel story we're all that familiar with. I've, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine this week. He said, what are you preaching this Sunday? I said, the woman with the bent back. And he's like, what's that? I think when we're reading through the Gospels, it's such a short uh, seven verses, you, you easily skip over it and don't pay it a lot of attention. But what I want to do is, uh, is give you what I think are, are a few of the take-home points from the sermon. Number one, Jesus Christ didn't have a problem with the Sabbath. Jesus Christ loved and kept the Sabbath faithfully. What Jesus Christ did not do is keep and observe all of the rules of the Sabbath that the Pharisees had imposed on it. And and really, they, they took the Sabbath and turned it upside down on its head and turned it into something that God never intended it for it to be. And I think that this is a, trip, a trap and temptation for all religious people. And here's how. The best illustration I've heard of this is, um, it goes... It goes like this Imagine that you are the parents of two rambunctious, high energy little boys, ages eight and ten. You live in a house, the backyard of which backs up to a very busy intersection where there's lots and lots of traffic. When your house was built, you made sure that the builders put a fence which would go all the way around the property. You said to them from the beginning that a fence was absolutely necessary to ensure the safety of your kids. And you told the boys that they were free to, to run in the grass and play on the jungle gym and enjoy as much as they wanted to in the backyard, so long as they they didn't climb the fence. Good parental advice. Well, during the first week that they have moved in the house, you, the mom, look out the window and you see the boys... Um, they're playing together, but they're also, from time to time, walking over walking over and surveying the fence, kind of estimating its height, seeing if they can find a foothold. You, as a mom, are understandably nervous, and so that night, you, you are, you're in bed with your husband, and, and you, you're saying, you say, I'm afraid, I'm really worried, um, what can we do? What, how can we protect our kids? Well, after some discussion, you and your husband decide that you need to build another fence inside the fence, a second fence, a fence within a fence, a fence that's a little bit higher and a little bit closer in. That way, the kids will have double protection. If they climb the first fence, presumably they'll be too tired to climb the second, or or so you, you assume. So you build a fence inside a fence. But what happens to your backyard when you do this? your nice green grassy backyard gets a little bit smaller. Well, okay, you're a week later, and uh, a similar event happens. Maybe this time the mom actually catches the boys trying to climb the fence. So the very next night, she talks to her husband, what are we going to do? Well, let's build a third fence, a fence that's a little bit taller and a little bit further in. And let's dig a tiny moat around the bottom of the fence so that they'll have an even more difficult time climbing out of the mud and they can't get a foothold and so on and so forth. You, you create a fence inside a fence inside a fence. And before long, what ends up happening is your nice, green, grassy play area is no longer a yard. It's a prison. It's a prison. This is what happened with the fourth commandment. The Pharisees were so worried that the people would transgress the Sabbath, they made rules and rules about the rules and tighter and tighter rules. They said the maximum distance you can walk on a Sabbath day is 3,000 feet from your house. If you walk 3,001 feet from your house, you have broken the Sabbath. They said the maximum weight that you can carry on the Sabbath day is 5 pounds. If you carry 10 pounds, that's 5 pounds too many, and you've broken the Sabbath. They said that you can't cook on the Sabbath, that you need to do all of your cooking on Friday night. It, I've said this before. If you and I were in Tel Aviv this morning, we were standing in an elevator with an ultra-Orthodox Jew, that Jew would ask you and me as Gentiles to push the floor on the elevator uh, console because flipping electric lights and pushing electric buttons is work, which is prohibited on the Sabbath. Now, friends, the law of Moses never said this. None of it was ever written in the Torah. It was all man-made invention, obscuring what God really desired. God intended the Sabbath to be the very best day of the week. That one day in seven when you would stop from your work, you would focus on worship, you go out later and enjoy a great meal with your friends and family, You take a walk in the park. You play a game with a child. You visit a shut-in who's in need of company. You enjoy the green grass of the the beautiful backyard with the jungle gym. Uh, That's what he intended it to be. Somebody has actually said, I thought this was interesting. They said that in the Bible, time is more important than space. What God has done is give us an architecture of time. The Sabbath is basically a temple of time, a temple in time, where we, we walk in and we stop all of the clattering of commerce and the noise of business, business and the demands of daily work so that we rest in the salvation of our God, where we fellowship together with all the saints, where we, we are refreshed and renewed in worship and rest, and where we are merciful to the, to the needy, to the disabled, to the who need God's gracious touch. That's what Jesus thought of the Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, I hope you think the same. That's what God intends for you on this day, this one in seven. Secondly, this passage brings words of comfort, wonderful words of comfort, to people who suffer from Uh, chronic disabilities, to people who suffer from chronic pain and illnesses. And one of the reasons I know that's the case is, uh, it's, you know, one healing in the story of of many, many healings. If you read through the Gospels, what you will find is that Jesus Christ, he has a special tenderness and sympathy towards people who have suffered for a long time. Did you know that? Uh, For example... In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who has been, quote, blind from birth. In Mark chapter 8, he heals a boy who had an unclean spirit, quote, since childhood. In Matthew 9, he heals a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. In Luke chapter 8, he heals, he exercises a demon-possessed man who, quote, for a long time had worn no clothes, the Gerizim demoniac. In John chapter 5, a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, laying outside of uh, Bethesda, he heals that man. And on, on and on and on, the list goes on. Jesus Christ is especially mindful of those who have suffered for a long time. He is mindful of them, and we are often not. Remember, brothers and sisters, that not all disabilities are as obvious as this woman's hunched back. If you have a child who's born with Down syndrome, then that's going to be obvious to, to pretty much everyone. But if you have a child who's born with autism, if you have a child who's born with cystic fibrosis, you know most other people won't have a clue that there is a disability that's long-standing Largely invisible to the naked eye. People who suffer from chronic migraines. People who suffer from multiple sclerosis or uh, diabetes. We may not see their suffering and we do not understand what it is that they're going through. I was reading a British pastor this, past, uh, this week whose child was born, a special needs child, born with a disability. And he was trying to explain to his congregation what it's like to have a special needs child. So he used this story. Uh, he said having a, a special needs child is, is like going to, you go to a restaurant with a group of friends. You enjoy great company, delicious food. And after the main course of the meal has, has been completed, your best friend stands up and he taps his glass with a spoon. He announces that he has bought a special dessert... For everyone as a gift. So your friend runs out to the car. He comes back a minute later and he's carrying an armful of round objects about the size of tennis balls. Each of them beautifully wrapped with a bow on top. So he passes them out and everyone starts to open up this mysterious gift. And one by one, each person in the group discovers that their friend has given them a chocolate orange. I didn't know what a chocolate orange was. (laughs) I must live with my head in the sand, but I had to look it up. Possibly because I don't like chocolate, but apparently it's a delicacy. 20 segments of rich, smooth, lightly flavored milk chocolate. Yuck, (laughs) that's what I'd say. But it's a chocolate lover's dream, and it's the perfect conclusion to a fine meal. All around the table, all of your friends are chattering and laughing and expressing to their host their great gratitude for this gift. Then you go to open yours. It is also round and wrapped. The identical size is theirs. You too have been given an orange. And it's an orange. An actual orange. 11, not 20 segments of sweet milk chocolate, but... 11 segments of erratically sized, seed-filled, juicy wedges, one which is uh, relatively difficult to peel. This one requires special dexterity to peel it without having the juice squirt you up in the eye or run down your wrist. You have been given an orange. And all the while, everybody is celebrating. They're opening, um, talking, and understandably, as they're doing so, they don't, Really, take any notice of you. They haven't noticed what you've got. They're they're busy eating their chocolate. And at that moment, what you try and do, you try and tell yourself, you remind yourself that there's nothing wrong with an orange. I mean, oranges are are great. They're sweet, tangy. Oranges are the undisputed kings of the citrus world. Oranges are filled with vitamin C. Any doctor will tell you that it is better for you to. To have an orange than to have this, this mixture of sugar, milk, fat, and cocoa butter, which your friends are right now consuming. And you try to tell yourself that. You try to look at it from that certain perspective, that you have actually been given the better dessert. Your gift is better than all of the rest of the gifts. And you try to remind yourself, it is a gift. It's not a wage. I didn't deserve it. I try to be thankful. But try as you might... Your heart sinks all the same. You stare at the orange in front of you with a mixture of surprise, disappointment, and confusion. When I read that description, I thought, what a powerful way of, of putting things. And it applies, of course, not merely to to child having a child born with a disability, it really does. It applies to 18 years of a hunched back. It applies to chronic migraines. It applies to a host of different situations. It, a host of invisible illnesses. And I wonder, can you relate to, personally to what he says? I know that some of you can. I know that some of you, you suffer like this. What I realized when I was reading the story is I can't. I mean, I'm the guy who has been given the chocolate orange. I've told you before, I feel like I've lived a relatively charmed life. I've enjoyed good health. My kids, Aaron, all of us, have done relatively well. We've had a few scares along the way, but but nothing which is chronic and debilitating. Nothing nothing like 18 years. Um, It's hard for me to relate to what you go through. I can only imagine how much, how appealing it would be to, to take your child off, to run off to a faith healer and have him lay his hands on your child and presto, the brain damage is gone, the autism is gone, they can go on to have a nor- normal childhood and a normal adolescence. Wouldn't it be so great to just have God heal? Uh, I heard the story of a woman in Seattle this week who, who was healed. She said she had a, bra- a, a spine that... The, the direction of a 90 year old woman, and yet God healed her spine and healed her multiple sclerosis. He didn't through, do it through a faith healer, but he did it through, the, the, through a prayer of faith. And sometimes God will do that. He'll answer those, those requests favorably. But normally he does not. Normally he does not go and, and take from his cachet an orange, a chocolate orange, and lay it back on your plate. And brothers and sisters, this is the point, is it not, where you are most tempted to despair. This is the one place in your life where you are the most tempted to despair of the debilitating pain in your body, the all-consuming nature of your thoughts, or are always thinking about this thing, I'm always trying to manage the diabetes, or I'm always trying to care for the, for the child. This is where you are most tempted to despair and bitterness, where Satan comes and whispers in your ear and wants to tie you up in knots on the inside. Possibly like this woman. He wants to hogtie you into into grief and bitterness and resentment. He tells you that that God is indifferent and capricious and he takes no notice of you out in the congregation. But what I want to say to you from... Luke chapter 13, is that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ does notice. And he reminds you in this passage, he reminds you in this passage that you are a son and daughter of Abraham. He longs to place his healing touch on you. You are a precious son and daughter of Abraham whose healing will soon Come, I'm reminded of the line from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings where he says, The hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. Jesus Christ showed himself to be this world's true and rightful king, and he promises to lay upon all of his people his healing hands. Every time in the Bible Jesus works a miracle, he's saying this is what the world is going to be like when it's underneath my healing hands. This Every time we read of Jesus feeding the hungry, he's saying this is what the world will be like. There will be no more starving children with distended bellies and flies on their faces. This is what the world will be like under the touch of the king. Every time he stills the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he's saying this is what the world will be like when, when weather is one day our friend. When there's no more... Floods. God help the people. Look what they've gone through in Louisiana. And no more tornadoes ripping through houses. No, what we think of miracles in the Bible is God suspending the natural law, the natural order of things, when in reality, miracles in the Bible are God's restoring the world to what it's supposed to be. And I would say, brothers and sisters, at least to those of you whom I'm addressing now. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the unfairness and capriciousness of God, he wants to bind you in that way. Remember, remember, you are a son and daughter of Abraham, whom Jesus notices and will heal soon. And remember the words of Psalm 126, where it says, Those who sow in tears shall one day reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping will one day bear the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing a harvest of sheaves with them. Remember, remember that, and remember that even though Jesus has not healed you yet, there is no part of the Christian life he leaves untouched. Isn't that true? There is no part of your life he leaves untouched. He promises that all things will work together for the good of those who love him. The most well-known verse is one of those hardest verses of the Bible to believe. But he promises all things, and by that he means all things, will work for the good of those who are under the care of the king. Remember that. Then I would say to those of us who have lived charmed lives with chocolate oranges, to please remember our brothers and sisters Remember how how lonely it is to be stuck at home because of pain and fatigue. How truly terribly lonely it is when you want to be out and socializing with other people. And your body or your child's body keeps you from even being able to do so. Remember the deep need of the soul that we have for community. And remember that the Sabbath day is God's invitation for us to go and visit And be the hands of Christ to touch them. Finally, I want to go back to the original thing that I was uh, talking about in the sermon. What precipitated this thought was an article in the New York Times by Nicholas Kristof. I read this week. Um, He described something that happened to him recently. He said, my dog died. And I posted on social media, posted on Facebook or something, you know. Our family pet of the last twelve years died, and I, I received an outpouring of sympathy and condolences from from friends online, which was really sweet and it helped it helped you know re- reduce the pain of the moment. So I posted that my dog died the next day. I published a column online calling for greater international efforts to end serious suffering in civil war. Uh, yeah, probably every one of us saw the picture of the five year old boy sitting in the back of the ambulance this week, his face caked in blood and in dirt, seated quietly there with his little feet extending beyond the seat, staring bewildered in shock forward, looking at nothing. How many of us saw that photo? Now, I'm not endorsing Nicholas Kristof's politics. I'm not even endorsing what he recommends that we do in Syria. But he published the one... The one thing he posted, the one thing he published, the other, and it was uh, when he posted the thing about Syria, he just he just got this deluge of angry comments about Syrian refugees and and Muslims and and all all of this. And he asked the question: Do we care more about our dogs than we care about people? Of course, we're not religious like the people in Jesus day, but is our is our society merciful to the disabled? Into the poor, isn't it ironic that we spend far, far more money on our dogs and pets than we do on the poor? You do any assessment of the, the charitable giving in our country, we spend we spend way more of our disposable income uh, on, our, on our on Fido than we do than we do the poor and disabled. And we are far more compassionate to animals than we are to humans. Our society tells us that if your child is going to be born with a birth defect, abort it. 90% of all children who are diagnosed in the womb with Down syndrome are aborted in the United States of America today. Yet we would go to extreme efforts to prolong the lives of animals that might have been injured in 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 an accident. We have Doggy treatment spas. I think of Jesus Christ. I just couldn't help but uh, imagine if, if Jesus Christ was living in a, our, the world that we live in today. His words to our world is, you hypocrites. You treat your ox and your donkey better than you treat your crippled, than your disabled. You hypocrites! You show more mercy and compassion to animals than you do or do to the poor. We have become a society very different from first century Israel, and yet eerily similar to first century Israel. And in this passage, God exposes our double standards. He rebukes us. The Son of God rebukes the culture of death, and reminds us that we are in desperate need. Of his kingdom to, to appear and to set things right again. We are in desperate need of of the rightful king to come and make the crooked straight. God have mercy on us all. Amen.